Hello, hello. Welcome to Goob Fellas. I don't know about you, Will, but I'm uh, dragging ass a little bit this morning, so I've got a double stack of coffee here, one in each hand. But I'm ready to jump into today's conversation. Yeah, I, you know, I have an Earl Grey tea. It's like the yin <laughs> to your yang. Oh my God. Yeah, no alcohol, no coffee. <laughs> this guy's really boring. Yeah, I'm, fun, I'm a fun time. Yeah, total fun time. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of fun people and really smart people, I'm really, really excited for this conversation. We have one of the most, I would say, you know, along with Dr. Will Cole, the most recognized young generation of functional medicine practitioners, Dr. Chris Kresser on the show today. And he's going to be talking about integrative and functional medicine. He's going to talk a little bit about his book. Uh, He's going to be talking about paleo nutrition, all sorts of things that are interesting to both you and I. Yeah, and what really I'm excited about this conversation is because I know Chris had gone through a horrible health crisis with no answers in the standard model of care. So I'm really excited to hear his thoughts and to hear his own journey. And I hope that other people can see themselves in him. And Mm -hmm. and maybe there's a, a message of hope that if you're up against a health problem, that you can start digging into finding out why you feel the way that you do. Absolutely. So Chris keeps a practice in Berkeley, the California Center for Functional Medicine. And there he and his team use a special approach to diagnosing and reversing the underlying causes of chronic conditions. So this is kind of something that's totally in your wheelhouse, something that's totally in my wheelhouse. It's a great conversation. And I think, um, you know, when we're speaking to people that understand this stuff, it may not be that mind-blowing to know that, well, for instance, what you eat can impact how you feel. But this really needs to get out, and this message really needs to get to to the greater public because there is so much correlation between how we treat our bodies and uh, and and how our bodies react. And Chris is just really, you know, he's a he's a really great voice and a wealth of of of, of information about the impact that our lifestyle choices have on our on our well being. Yeah. So here's a conversation with Chris Kresser. Kind of take us back to that, to your diagnosis and your illness and how mm-hmm. that informed you and helped you, you know, got you on the path to being the person you are today. Well, I was uh, in my early 20s. I was working in film and television production, you know, 70 plus hour weeks and very quickly became apparent that that was not for me. And um, I... Uh, unfortunately, I was lucky to have made a little bit of money early on in that, and so I sold you know everything I owned and uh, saved some money and decided to take off and travel the world. And I'm a lifelong surfer, so I you know planned out a series of destinations based on that, and planned to be gone for about a year and a half. And I was in Indonesia uh, on a little island called Sumbawa, surfing a spot called Lakey Peak, and. Uh, unbeknownst to the few handful of surfers that was surfing there, some of the locals had dug a trench draining this stagnant pool of, of water where cows had been milling around and defecating and that they drained it into the river mouth and then that water uh, went out in, into the surf <laughs> Tropical so, paradise going awry. Trop- exactly, yeah. So a number of people who were there, including me, got very sick and I got hit, you know, probably as hard or harder than anybody. And it was, you know, diarrhea, vomiting, delirium. You know, I really don't remember much of what happened over those three days. And uh, fortunately, an Australian guy who was staying in the village had some extra antibiotics that I took that kind of brought me back from the brink. And then I was, you know, I I actually kind of recovered most of my function and continued to travel. I went to the Maldives, to South Africa, Mauritius, uh, Reunion Island. And then 
uh, back to Australia, and I, in Australia, I started to get sick again and started to have some of the, some of the same symptoms that I'd had during that acute episode, and then uh, some new symptoms that I hadn't previously had, and just got you know tried to see some local people there in Australia, and you know just started to get worse and worse, and so I'd, I'd been on the road for almost a year by by then, and decided to come home to the to the U.S. to get some help and you know went to my conventional doctor and he without doing any testing just said ah sounds like parasite infection which seemed reasonable to me mm-hmm. uh, so he prescribed flagell a common anti-parasitic medication and I took it and I did feel a little bit better initially and but then after you know a few weeks the symptoms all came back and when this happened mm-hmm. in Indonesia, did you know that the water was contaminated? Or, or at this point, you're just like, I have this mysterious GI issue, and I have no idea what the cause well, might be. Well, we knew, yeah, we suspected, because everybody got sick. Okay. It wasn't just me. And, and so we thought, you know, maybe it was something in the food, but not everyone had eaten the same thing. And we kind of did some, you know, sleuthing around uh-huh. and found out that that had happened. So... But of course, you know, this is a super rural area. There was no medical care. You know, I didn't, I hadn't had any testing. I was away, you know, from home. And I was in my early 20s. I still felt like I was kind of indestructible. You're Superman. You know, I thought, I thought, hey, what, what can, you know, this was not the first time I'd had what seemed like a food poisoning type of thing. And, you know, I had no idea that it would evolve into what it did. And, and especially because I got better and I kept right. traveling after that. And even when I got, when I got sick again in Australia, I wasn't sure whether it was related to that previous thing or what, you know. So a lot of this became more clear in retrospect. And so, yeah, I saw a bunch of doctors and, and many of them, you know, said the same kind of thing. This is probably parasites, take these drugs. Eventually, they started doing some testing, but it was coming up inconclusive. And I finally ended up in New York City to see, you know, after seeing 10 doctors around the West Coast, to see an infectious disease specialist. And he did some testing right in his office and and that's where I found out I had three different parasites. I had two parasites and one amoeba. And the and flagell wasn't so, wiping them out? No. But it was, I'm sure is, it was wreaking havoc on your body regardless. Yeah, 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 and we now know, you know, for a lot for these particular pathogens that I had, the single therapy with flagell is often ineffective. Uh-huh. So, so then we did more drugs, um, and those actually were eventually effective in wiping out the pathogens, but they were also very effective in wiping out all of my beneficial gut bacteria and microbes. And, and I was still sick, you know, it was, and, and by then it was like, I'd gotten better to some extent from getting rid of the parasites, but you know, the phrase that sometimes the treatment is worse mm-hmm. than the disease. And so I, I was then dealing with all of these uh, downstream effects from having taken all of these drugs and I was really sick. Uh, you know, I was in my mid-20s by this point, and I spent most of the day on some days just curled up in a in a ball on the floor in pain, not knowing whether I was going to have a normal life, be able to work. You know, I wasn't, at that time, was definitely not able to work, you know, have a relationship and do all of the things that I had kind of imagined that I would do in my life. I was just totally taken down by this thing and it was a pretty dark period for 
a couple of years where I, I just couldn't get the help that I needed. Nobody knew what was going on, including me. And I was in so much pain and discomfort that I was, you know, just non-functional. So, oh my God. Uh, that, yeah, that so was you were, a, it was a dark time. You were essentially abandoned by the medical community. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when I look back, I, most of the doctors I saw were caring and they, they wanted to help. They just didn't have the tools to address that kind of complex chronic condition. You know, it was not something they were trained to do in medical school. And, you know, when the initial drug therapies didn't work, there was just, and even after they did work, they didn't know how to clean up the mess right. you know, that, that those treatments had caused. What was the, the tipping point for you, though, when you got, I mean, it, obviously this is what drove you to pursue alternative therapies, but how did yeah. that, what was the tipping point? Because you did get better. And, and yeah. how, did you, how did you find that calling? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was already somewhat open to alternatives to conventional medicine. And along the way, when I was seeing uh, Western doctors, I was also... Uh, seeing herbalists and acupuncturists, and at some point, I just I I would say I abandoned conventional medicine. Okay. <laughs> you know, I I saw that even though it had been helpful to some extent in, in getting rid of the parasites, there was not much left that it had to offer me in terms of you know recovery from this complex chronic illness. And so I then really switched my focus over to alternative therapies and you know as I said I was seeing an acupuncturist I saw Ayurvedic doctors I saw you know shamans energy healers mm -hmm. like everything you can possibly imagine and there were a number of things that really made a difference for me I mean one was just stumbling on the diet that worked best for me so I had tried everything from raw diet food diet vegan diet uh, I was a macrobiotic vegan for some period of time and even apprenticing with a macrobiotic vegan chef and those didn't work for me at all and actually made me worse. I, my digestion just couldn't handle those kinds of foods. And mm -hmm. I eventually learned about the, the Weston Price approach to nutrition, which is like a just really nutrient-dense uh, anti-inflammatory diet with, you know, animal foods and bone broth, which is really healing for the gut and fermented foods like sauerkraut, which helped to reestablish the beneficial bacteria. But that diet, you know, said uh, you could eat uh, grains and legumes as long as they were properly prepared. But mm -hmm. I noticed that I couldn't tolerate them. So I took those out. And then I was essentially on a paleo diet before paleo, anyone, you know, really knew what that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that was a big piece of it for sure. And then I also started to kind of discover this concept of functional medicine, like this idea that, you know, the best approach to deal with any kind of illness or disease is to try to figure out what the root cause of the problem is instead of just taking drugs to suppress right. the symptoms. And that had never made sense to me, you know, where like, okay, now the parasites are gone, you're, you're in all of this pain and discomfort. Uh, and your gut's not working, so let's just give you, you know, pain medication for the pain. Let's give you antispasmodics for the gut or laxatives for constipation or Imodium for diarrhea. Mm -hmm. It was just a whole bunch of different over-the-counter prescription drugs to deal with the symptoms, and that didn't make any sense to so, me. So, so. Was, was the thought process that everything that you were experiencing was just kind of leftover effects from having been damaged by the parasites? Uh, or was there any, like, recognition that it might have been the actual approach to healing that had left you damaged? So this was 
20 years ago and the awareness about the effects of antibiotics were not were was not as high as it is now i mean there was there was definitely some awareness of it and some of the doctors acknowledged that that could have been the issue they just didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. about it and so you know i i think it was both and i also think that when you deal with an intense illness like that, it can have effects on the nervous system, the endocrine system, the immune system that can be long lasting even after the initial trigger has passed. And that's, that's what I think happened for me as well. Yeah. Chris, in your most recent book, Unconventional Medicine, you talk about the mainstream medicine and what people are left as far as options are concerned within mainstream medicine. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the approach that you advocate in unconventional medicine, just explain that to everybody. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the the main issue with conventional medicine is that it's the wrong tool for the job that we face today. So, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, 1900, the top three causes of death were all acute infectious diseases like typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. Other reasons people went to the doctor were also for acute emergency problems like they, someone broke their arm or they uh, have had appendicitis or something like that. So it was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, one problem, one doctor, one treatment, and that's it. When you fast forward to today, seven of, of the top 10 causes of death are chronic disease. And, mm-hmm. and chronic disease accounts for 90% of the $3.5 trillion that we spend on healthcare. And so our medical model is actually really good at dealing with acute problems. Like I said in the book, if I get hit by a bus, I want to go to the hospital, you know, not to an acupuncture, at least not, not right away. (laughs) (laughs) Later I do, but you know, that's where our medical model evolved out of that problem where acute emergency situations were the biggest issues that we faced. And it's really good at dealing with those, but it's not good at dealing with these complex chronic illnesses because in those cases, the situation is, as I said, complex. It often, you know, they're, they're problems that, that last for years and maybe even a lifetime. And the causes are varied. You know, it, they're, they're more related to diet, lifestyle, and behavior, or, you know, other conditions that can arise in the body that require more investigation and care. And so in that situation, I think we need to shift our focus from just, using medications to suppress the symptoms, which is what the conventional, how the conventional model deals with chronic disease. Like, I mean, everyone knows examples of this. If you go to your doctor and you have high cholesterol, what's going to happen? Statins. They're going to give you a drug. If, if, if you go and you have high blood pressure, they're going to give you a drug. And if you ask them how long you're, you're, you have to take those drugs, what's the answer going to be? Yeah, I mean, it's in, rest, in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, rest of yeah. your life. And so... That, I think, again, is an artifact of taking that model that was really evolved out of addressing acute problems and trying to apply it to chronic disease. So in in my book, I argue that we need to shift that model to make it more relevant to the challenge that we face now. And the way to do that is to focus on identifying and addressing the root cause of disease in, so instead of suppressing symptoms. It's almost like looking at the symptom as a as a clue or as a, as a as a message rather than the actual, you know, you don't kill the messenger, you try to understand what the message is, what's driving the message and then address that. Right. I mean, think about it like a tree. So like the if the branch or the leaves are the symptoms and then you have to look follow that back down to the root to see uh, what's happening or you know, it's a, a simple analogy I often use to describe this 
to people is if you have a, a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, you could take Advil, right? And <laughs> yeah. it, it would it would help with the pain a little yeah. a little bit, but why not just take off your shoe and dump out the rock? And that's what yeah. functional medicine is about. And ultimately, you have to go beyond the root and you got to look at the soil, which it seems like that's Absolutely. kind of what your approach was when you started to adopt the paleo approach, the paleo diet before you even really knew you were following a paleo protocol. And I know in your first book where you you um, you really advocate for creating your own personal uh, relationship mm-hmm. with food and it not it's not yeah. like one size fits all. Yeah. As you said, following the Weston A. Price guidelines that had a lot of whole grains and legumes and things that were inflammatory to you. How have you used it within your own practice using the paleo diet? How do you personalize it? Do you think that everyone who's dealing with a chronic inflammation can benefit from a paleo diet? Are there some broad strokes that apply to everybody or is it really, really totally individualistic? Yeah, that's just, it's one tool that we use. We use many others as well, even from a dietary perspective. We use fasting, we use keto, we use, I call it Mediterranean versions of paleo and keto. Mm-hmm. I have patients that are vegetarians uh, for cultural or other reasons, and I'm happy to work with them. So I'm, I'm not dogmatic or rigid about it, but I think the, in general, what I've seen in working with a lot of people is that you know, certainly removing all processed and refined foods uh, is is key because of the inflammatory effect they have and the effect on the gut microbiota. And focusing on really nutrient-dense whole foods like, um, you know, animal products, uh, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and some starchy plants like, you know, sweet potatoes, for mm-hmm. example, uh, grains and legumes, it really depends on the person. Like if someone's uh, digestive uh, tract is working well, um, you know, they may very well be able to tolerate moderate amounts of, you know, grains and legumes as long as they're not displacing more nutrient-dense foods. I think that's perfectly fine. But what many of my patients, not all, many of them who are dealing with some level of digestive distress, find it uh, that they just do better um, mm-hmm. without the, the grains and the legumes, at least for a time. And then they right. can add some of those back later. And dairy is, is similar. You know, I think if you look at the research on dairy, and I'm, I'm a bit of a contrarian here because I know dairy is, is vilified in most uh, alternative health circles. But mm-hmm. if you look at the actual peer-reviewed research on full-fat dairy, it it should, it's inversely correlated with cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, other metabolic disorders, and uh, it's hard to make a strong argument against it. So the, the mm-hmm. question with dairy, in my mind, is whether someone individually tolerates it. You know, the, about a third of the population has the ability to digest lactose, and two-thirds do not. So you have to take that into consideration. So it's very personalized depending on the situation. Yeah. I mean, I know from my own experience as somebody who's gone through a lot in my own life and my relationship with food, I know that dairy is something that I don't have a digestive issue with dairy, but I notice and I feel fine when I eat dairy. But when I take dairy out of my life for a period of time, I feel a lot better. And it's more it's yeah. more about not noticing that it's having a, a direct or acute inflammatory um, impact on my life, but rather in all likelihood it's having a low-level chronic inflammatory infl- effect on me. And so when I take it out, I, I notice a, a significant difference. Mm-hmm. Quick question on, on dairy when we were talking about that. Why, why full fat versus low fat? 
What's the difference? Um, well, again, I mean, if you look at the research, the benefits that you see with dairy uh, in many studies are not there with low-fat and non-fat dairy. Mm-hmm. They're only there with full-fat dairy. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of the, you know, some of the things that might be responsible for conferring the benefits of dairy products are fatty acids, mm-hmm. like conjugated linolenic acid, which are in the fat. <laughs> and right. uh, also some of the fat-soluble vitamins and nutrients that are in grass-fed dairy are, mm-hmm. are uh, digested and absorbed, more assimilated when the fat there is present. And so if you remove the fat, you're removing the part that is, at least from what we understand from the research, giving dairy products their beneficial effect. So this, of course, flies in the face of 50 years of low-fat dogma, but mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, over the last 10 or 20 years, there's been you know a lot of uh, evidence published that uh, I think shows pretty clearly that the the phobia, fat phobia we had for you know half a century was misplaced. What are your thoughts on the carnivore diet, Chris? Well, so the carnivore diet is an approach where you basically eat all meat and nothing else, and there are some you know variations on it. But I don't think it's a, a good choice for the long term. If you study traditional diets of healthy cultures, you'll find that almost without exception, they ate a combination of both plant and animal foods. And plant and animal foods have different benefits and different nutrients. Animal foods are the highest bioavailable sources of nutrients like iron and zinc and calcium and many others, uh, especially if you include organ meats and shellfish, whereas plant foods are, and they're a great bioavailable source of protein, of course, as well, whereas the plant foods are the best source of phytonutrients, um, flavonoids and uh, antioxidants and other compounds like that, and they're also a great source of fermentable fiber that can feed our beneficial gut flora. So I think if you completely exclude the entire plant food category, that's very well could cause problems over the long term. I understand why people do it. And I, I think that the people who are extremely ill who do it and, and get a benefit, my, my theory on that, it's animal protein is digested pretty high up in the digestive tract. So when you remove all plant foods and the fiber, you're basically giving the gut a rest. You're, and you're and probably you're not eating a lot of garbage that they would be eating otherwise, too. Yeah. True. Yeah. So you're limiting, and you're limiting a lot of potential antigens, like mm-hmm. things that the body could have a, a, an a intolerance or allergic kind of reaction to. And I think that has what has led to like the pretty spectacular, you know, responses that some people have. Yeah. Um, but this is where I distinguish between a, a predicament and a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, fasting is it can cure a lot of diseases, right? But you can't fast for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so one doesn't follow the other, right? Yeah. No, I see I agree with you. I think I see the carnivore diet as the ultimate elimination diet. Short term, yeah. you get to a baseline, but you can't do that forever. Great great way right. of putting it. Yeah. And when right. we think about the the paleo diet, I mean, obviously this is sort of the the notion of the paleo diet is is that it's based on hunter-gatherer foods. How do you suggest that people approach eating meats and fish? Um, since a lot of it does com- now contain a lot of hormones or mercury and other additives, like what if you're if you're eating a diet that has a significant amount of animal protein in it, how important is the source of that and that toxic load from eating foods that are raised conventionally and are used, you know, whether it's antibiotics or growth hormones? 
Yeah, it's it's very important. Um, I you know definitely recommend uh, choosing pasture-raised organic meat, wild-caught fish, and species of fish that are not high in mercury and other toxins uh, tend to be lower on the food chain. And in terms of budget, you know, because that can be expensive for some people, I often tell my patients and others who ask me, in some ways, it would be just as good, if not better, to be a vegetarian that eats organ meats and shellfish than it is to be a, a meat eater that just eats muscle meat, um, which is what mm-hmm. you know many people do. Because when you look at the nutrient profile of organ meats and shellfish, and I actually had a chart in my first book that shows this, they, they are orders of magnitude higher in nutrients like zinc and iron and copper, choline, uh, that so many Americans don't get enough of. And you don't have to eat a lot of them in order to get the benefit. You know, you can have a couple servings of liver, for example, a week and a couple servings of shellfish, and that will be more nutrient-dense than eating, you know, chicken breast every day. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at, you even look at animals in the wild that are carnivores, they often, when they attack their prey, they often end up eating organ meat first. That's the sort of like the prize. Right. They, they know that that's, the, most of the nutrients are found in the in the liver and, and in the in the thymus and all the other, the organ meats that we we discard and are really, I mean, incredibly inexpensive. So I, you touched on something that I think is really interesting and I'm, I'm curious to know your take on it, this idea of budget, because there's, it's almost as though leading a healthy lifestyle has become a privilege, something that only people who have the means, I know personally when I was going through my own health transformation, I spent a lot of money uh, on food, on supplementation, on, on specialized treatment and it was successful. I was able to reclaim my health, but for people that don't have the same sort of financial means or, or, or probably in most cases are in most need of help, how do you look at that? Because is there, is there a way that we can kind of democratize this approach to what is really healthcare and not sick care? And, and how do you see the future of medicine? Yeah, those are very important, big questions, because uh, if we go back to that tree analogy, you'd mentioned the soil. Uh, Another part of the soil is just the social environment and the other determinants of health, like our air quality, our water quality, uh, the environment that we live in, like the the urban environment uh, versus the rural environment, toxins in personal and home care products, and as you mentioned, the when you look at starting to um, make smarter choices around that stuff, it requires money, and mm-hmm. and there is a tremendous amount of privilege involved in being able to shop at Whole Foods and buy all green, healthy home care and personal care products, and even to live in a neighborhood that doesn't have water that has lead in it. Right. You know, like in uh, Flint, Flint, Michigan, Michigan. Yeah. And, and Oakland. Here in Oakland, uh, and actually in East Oakland, the water, there's a lead problem that's even worse than Flint, Michigan, that for whatever reason is not getting much national attention. So uh, the people that suffer the most, as usual, unfortunately, historically, are the uh, people with the fewest resources. And that is a very big problem that I recognize, and I, I don't have, you know, any kind of magic solution mm-hmm. to that. But I, I do think that one area to, to look is what, we, what we're subsidizing currently, <laughs> you know, right. what the, the, the hold that big food has on 
culture and society at large and and big pharma and the money that goes into subsidizing uh, highly processed and refined foods to actually make them cheaper than they would be if they didn't have those subsidies. And what would happen if we changed our priorities and decided to subsidize healthier choices uh, that, that people could make? And what would happen if we started to shift our payer environment so that there was support offered for a functional medicine approach through the insurance care model. And that, I think, is entirely possible. One of the examples I used in my book on conventional medicine is that um, we know it takes about $15,000 to treat a patient with type 2 diabetes once they develop that disease. And now, with people developing it earlier and earlier, and our kind of amazing tech, medical technology that prolongs life, it's totally conceivable that somebody could live with type 2 diabetes for 40 years. So if you do the math on that, that's $600,000 <laughs> for one person, one disease in one person. So imagine a scenario where that person goes to the doctor before, you know, when they have prediabetes, the doctor does some, you know, testing and says, hey, you've got prediabetes. Good news is because we caught this early, we can reverse it and make sure you never develop full-fledged type 2 diabetes. And we know that the main thing that's going to make a difference here is dialing in your diet and behavior and your lifestyle. And we know that change is hard. So we have a health coach on staff that's going to come to your house and do a pantry clean out. They're going to take you shopping and you know, make sure you know how to eat the right foods. We've got a nutritionist who's going to get you on a great meal plan. We've got a partnership with personal trainer, a local gym that's going to get you on an exercise program. And guess what? All of this is covered by your insurance. Well, that might cost $1,000. You know, would you spend $1,000 to save $600,000? I would. <laughs> it's a good deal. So, yeah, it's awesome. So ultimately, it really comes down to behavioral choices and prioritization, man. Yeah. Chris, I could talk to you. We could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but we got to wrap this up. But I want to know from you, what are what are three really basic, simple decisions that people can make on a daily basis to take control of their health and to get them on a better path to having a better relationship with their own body? Sure. It always comes back to the, the simple things, and the simple things are not easy, but they are at least simple. And one is, I, I would say, just eat real food. That's that's four words to describe the diet approach. To that, you know, if we just keep it that simple, stop arguing about paleo versus this, that, or the other. Like, just eat real food. You know, and I think if we did that, it, we'd solve 80% of the problems we have. The second thing is to move your body. So, and again, this, we don't need to make this complicated. It doesn't have to be high intensity interval training or CrossFit or whatever. It's just like, don't sit as much and, you know, stand for half the day, aim for about eight or 10,000 steps of walking. And then, and then, you know, try to fit in a few periods of more intense exercise a week. Again, that would solve 80% of the problem. And then the third thing is get some sleep. Uh, we know that Back in 1960, fewer than 2% of Americans got less than six hours of sleep, and now that's up to almost 35%. That's a major cause of, of the chronic disease epidemic that we're only now beginning to fully understand. So the average person, unfortunately, I know this is bad news, but the average person <laughs> needs seven to eight hours of sleep. Oh, my God, um, I'm with, failing. With, 
<laughs> well, yeah, without, you know, without checking text messages in the middle of the night, you know, uninterrupted sleep. So I think that is the hardest one for most people who are listening to this, myself included. That seems totally doable. So eat, move, and sleep. sleep. Dr. Chris Kresser, thank you so much for joining us. What I loved the most about this conversation was the fact that there are so many people going through similar issues. I mean, the rise of autoimmune conditions and inflammatory, just chronic health problems. This is more commonplace than than not. And I hope that this conversation can really speak to people that are struggling or maybe someone with a a family member or a loved one that's going through this. And it's like unsustainable. I mean, so many people are sick now. Yeah. Literally at the rate that we're going... If we don't make some serious changes to our practice of healthcare and change it from sick care to healthcare, we're going to end up in a major, major financial crisis. Yeah. And we have to do, like you said, we have to do something different to see something different. And mm-hmm. this idea that we can keep throwing more and more money on sick care when people across the country are very compliant people, they're taking all the medications that right. they're supposed to take and they're still struggling. So uh, this is this is really um, exciting for me on a on a personal level, but obviously as a functional medicine practitioner, I'm super excited to get this information out there yeah. for people. I could really relate to a lot of what Chris went through in his own diagnosis. That whole idea of knowing there's something severely wrong, being completely disillusioned with with conventional medicine because not you weren't able to get the answers. It, you know, I was super sick for years. I I went undiagnosed for many, many years and had all these flare-ups, um, which later were eventually diagnosed as RA flare-ups. But the worst one was in my left hip. And in, you know, I was in the ER and they gave me an MRI in my left hip. It was full of fluid and they were convinced I had a septic hip. Um, and I almost went in for what's called a pelvic evacuation where they were going to basically split me open and scrub out this alleged infection which would have been completely unnecessary and would not have done anything for me, but would have left me with a a totally dysfunctional hip. And, you know, that's a very extreme example of what happens when we don't understand the root cause of illness. But to go through like what I went through or what Chris went through, there's so many people out there that are unnecessarily taking medications that aren't really helping them. They're in many cases making them more sick or that Mm -hmm. are just living with a tremendous amount of pain and discomfort that, that is avoidable. You know, I'm I'm super excited about this conversation becoming much more mainstream and and hopefully getting more and more information about the power of the individual and of the lifestyle choices we make to really course correct our our well being. Sure. So we can learn more about Chris Cresser and his practice at chriscresser.com. And be sure, believe me, check out his books on conventional medicine and the Paleo Code. Such good books. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. Will, 
I got to ask you something. Well, this is a question that's not from me, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. <laughs> this is a question from Dave. He wants to know, are smoothies bad for you? Isn't there a ton of sugar in there? And we talk a lot about sugar. So what's your take on smoothies? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of smoothie places out there. People want the smoothies. They think, oh, it's fruit. It should be good for me. So whether you're going to like a store or like a shop that makes smoothies, or you're making it yourself, you're going to want to look at the ingredients that you're putting in there or that are being put in there. Because a lot of times it's not just fruit. It's a lot of fruit juice. It's a lot of maybe even added like sorbets and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a consideration. Right. Um, but you know, I, I don't think that if it's a whole fruit smoothie with lots of greens in it, uh -huh. uh, I would focus on lower fructose fruits, things like berries, strawberries, blackberries, blueberries. That's what I would go to where you're still going to have the fructose, but it's going to be lower fructose. And then you can use a base that is a higher, healthier fat, like almond milk or coconut milk or something like that, where it's still a lot of fat. And then you're just putting a little bit of fruit in there to sweeten it up and then you can add lots of greens and other superfoods like adaptogens in in there like different herbs and different uh, nutrients that way even uh like people can add like mct oil which is basically mm. medium change or glyceride like fat healthy fat from coconut oil uh so those are some th ways to make smoothies lower sugar focusing on healthier fats instead. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's about all about how you make your smoothie and what's inside of it. What do you think? Yeah, no, my smoothie, my daily smoothie is um, my liquid is water and then I just put a steak in the, in the blender. So it's just basically a beef <laughs> smoothie and there's, yeah, there's no, there, there's not very much sugar in it. Yeah, no, that, that wouldn't <laughs> no. be very much sugar. You'd be no. fine with that meat juice. Yeah, exactly. Meat smoothie. juice. No, I, I agree with you completely. And I think that there's fine. It's, if you're just making a smoothie, that's a bunch of like broccoli and kale and cauliflower and, you know, like a quarter of an apple, it's not going to be super palatable. So having a little sugar in there will help. Uh, blueberries are a great source for that. Frozen frozen wild blueberries I use often in smoothies. The, the, I'll be totally honest with you, though. I'm not a huge smoothie guy. I like to eat my calories and not drink my calories, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. But I do – I am an advocate for smoothies over juices. You obviously get all the fiber from the vegetables and, when you're, and, and fruit, if you're adding fruit, um, to your smoothie that you don't get in a juice. Uh, but I, I would say make it yourself or be conscientious of, or, you know, find out what the ingredients are that are in there. Because so mm -hmm. often when you're adding a ton of, of like frozen mango and, um, frozen banana and you start adding all this fruit in, that's actually really, really high in sugar. Uh, you mm -hmm. get, you end up with something that's much more akin to a dessert than, than, um, than a really solid meal replacement. Yeah. And if you are getting it in a store, uh, you know, a, a smoothie shop, look at the grams of sugar that's in there uh, too, because it's going to be astounding, some of those smoothies. It's a ton of sugar. But ultimately too, I think what you said is really true about chewing your food. I don't think smoothies should be like an all-day, everyday thing because the signaling that our body gets from chewing is important for healthy digestion. Definitely a good point. Thanks for bringing it up. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.